0: everyone welcome back to here and apologetics glad you're joining us today today i'm joined by dr randall rouser we're going to be talking about um his recent book jesus loves the canaanites talking about biblical genocide and moral intuition and all these things so uh, randall thank you so much for joining me thanks for having me zach good to be with you yeah, I'm really excited for this conversation. We're going to kind of just like look at like an overview of your book and like some of the issues you you bring up and like different views with regards to like how do we look at like biblical violence, especially in like the Old Testament. Um, so all kinds of fun things. So to start off, could you like just do like introduce yourself and like what got you interested in like this particular topic and such? Yeah,
1: uh, my name is Randall and I've been blogging online for probably 13 years as the tentative of apologist I'm a professor at Taylor Seminary in Edmonton, Canada, where I've been for almost 20 years, teaching in apologetics, theology, Christian worldview, and some church history as well. And in terms of the issue, and and I've published 13, 14 books now. I think this is my 14th one. So in terms of biblical violence, um, of course, as with many Christians, this is something that for me was a, a matter of some cognitive dissonance for many years. And it really kind of hit a hit a, uh, hit a boiling point or, or whatever, hit a critical point in about 2008. And I read an article actually by Paul Copan responding to the New Atheist Challenges in Philosophia Christi and the journal. And I found it really inadequate. Um, so I wrote a response uh, and that article was published in the same journal a year later, 2009. I was on a panel with Paul Copan and, and a couple, couple other scholars uh, about 2010, I think, at a AAR conference, American Academy of Religion. And since then, I've just been thinking about it. So I didn't, I, back in 2008, 9, 10, I didn't have fully worked out views. But it was something that I wanted to bring to a resolution. And then I ended up doing a debate in uh, December of last year. So December 2020. And uh, with Dan Barker, well-known atheist about biblical violence. And when I mapped out my five pages of notes in preparation for that, I thought, you know what? Here's a book. I could write a book about this. So I took about two months and I put it down into book form. And here we are today.
0: Mm, that's exciting. Um, and I'm looking forward to talking with you about um, this book and your perspective and things. Um, so to start off, like, when, what are some examples of violence in the Bible um, that you're considering as you're writing this book?
1: Yeah, there are so many examples of violence. Um, And I think one of the best places to go for a survey of the violence generally would be Greg Boyd's work. In particular, Crucifixion of the Warrior God, which is 1,500 pages. And so he takes a lot of time just to to enumerate all the different examples of violence. Now, some examples of violence that one could talk about, and, and some that I talk about in passing, is the violence of the Torah punishments, such as stoning. So the practice of stoning people to death. Uh, as a capital punishment. Um, another one would be Samson. Interestingly, uh, he ends his life by committing suicide in a temple full of civilians. Uh, and it was mm. Philip Jenkins who first pointed out to me in a book that that would really qualify as an ancient Near eastern equivalent of what we today call suicide bombing. Mm. So so that's a very provocative, but that's the reality of, of what happens there. So To begin to reframe some of these narratives and stories that we've sort of grown up with and have never really perhaps thought about in terms of their violence can be very disconcerting. Of course, there's the violence of of God's punishments through nature, such as flooding the earth. And so this punitive measure of judging a human population and all the animals as well indiscriminately by drowning them all. Uh, drowning is certainly would qualify as what we would say is a cruel and unusual form of punishment. In fact, 15 years ago, there was a big debate in the United States um, about waterboarding and whether waterboarding constituted torture. And George Bush's administration was using waterboarding of suspected terrorists at the time. And it was decided, no, this does qualify as torture and it's immoral. And what waterboarding does is recreate the sensation of drowning. Well, then If the sensation of drowning constitutes torture, drowning itself constitutes a cruel and unusual form of punishment. So you begin Mm -hmm. to think about these things and you just find the problem kind of ballooning. Uh, There's rhetorical violence in the imprecatory psalm. So the psalmist cursing his enemies. There's eschatological violence or violence at the end of history, such as we see in Revelation. Um, And then uh, the general resurrection to judgment and hell and so on. And so you could go off on a million different topics if you wanted to, but to my mind, the most troubling uh, is the violence that we find, which seems to qualify as what we would call genocide. Uh, And so we have that in places like uh, Numbers 31 with respect to the Midianites, killing all the men, women and boys, but keeping the virgin girls for yourself. Many commentators have also pointed out that that seems to imply sexual slavery. Uh, because 12-year-old girls that have their family killed are not consenting to a sexual relationship with the man who just killed their family. Uh, The Amalekites in 1 Samuel 15, and then the Canaanites, most infamously. And so we have the place where I really focus is on the Canaanites. And it's a test case for biblical violence generally. If we can begin to understand the violence against the Canaanites in Deuteronomy 7 and 20 and the book of Joshua, I think we're well on our way to developing a general approach for thinking about biblical violence
0: Mm, that's great so one of the key things like in this book as i've been reading is talking about like what is genocide and like what is ethnic cleansing um so define it define your terms here um when you're talking about genocide and ethnic cleansing especially like with regards to the canaanites um what are you bringing forth here
1: yeah it's a good question Uh, and i think that often discussions about this are hampered by the fact that people have an inadequate understanding of what genocide is. Now, it's a it's a modern concept. So it was coined, I think, in 1944 by Raphael Lemkin, survivor of World War II, who observed what was going on in the European theater with respect to the Nazis and the Jews. He himself was ethnically Jewish. And he said, we need a special definition for what's going on here. Um, and so it comes from from the Greek genos, so referring to a kind or a type of thing. And the the key idea behind genocide, which is then encapsulated in the 1948 definition that was adopted at the United Nations Convention on the Prevention and Punishment of Genocide. The core idea is that genocide is concerned with the eradication of identity as such. And so it includes a national, ethnical, racial, or religious identity. So for example, if you wanna kill all Irish people, or or you want to destroy um, American culture, or you want to attack everybody that's ethnically Asian or Christian, and you're targeting that group as such, then that becomes genocide. And the key to understand genocide is that it's, it's not just about killing people as individuals, although that is the sort of most egregious or striking example of genocide. But the motivation behind genocide is the destruction of the genos, the kind, the type of thing itself. It's the attempt to destroy Judaism as an identity ethnically or religiously. It's the attempt to destroy uh, you know uh, any, any other group, right like the uh, Tutsis that I talk about at some length in the book in Rwanda in 1994 as an identity. And that is what makes genocide a uniquely disturbing. Uh, crime that it's not simply about killing people as individuals, mm. but it's about destroying an identity. Mm. Oh, and yeah. you also asked for ethnic cleansing. So I'll just say ethnic mm-hmm. cleansing doesn't have a precise legal definition, but uh, the term was coined in the early 1990s, and it refers to the intentional attempt to remove a particular racial or ethnic or religious identity from a particular geographic region. So, so um, there's more flex in in terms of of um, how one defines uh, ethnic cleansing, because it doesn't have a formal definition, but that's the basic idea.
0: Mm, that's great. Um, so the next question I have for you here is like, how should we not read the Bible? Because um, it's interesting here, like you talk about um, just like some principles and ideas of um, maybe like you seen like in like your debate with like maybe Dan Barker, kind of like re- like ways to just not interpret the Bible. Um, so w- what are your thoughts here on how to not interpret the Bible with regards to like these passages? <laughs>
1: Yeah, well, I think one way how to not uh, interpret the Bible, um, I'll tell you this, first of all, it's very difficult to, to answer the question how not to without addressing mm-hmm. how to. Because yeah. Because those are really mm-hmm. just two sides of the same coin. But, mm-hmm. I, but I will say this, that that I think that often people like Dan Barker and uh, many Christians who adopt a particular view, they both take the same approach which is just to read these texts as straightforward historical claims, just take it as it is. And and I think often um, in the background there is there's a hermeneutical or an interpretive principle, which is very common in, in what is called fundamentalism. Protestant fundamentalism in particular. And that is this idea that you interpret literally where possible, or the idea being that the common sense literal interpretation for a contemporary reader is the preferred or default interpretation. Um, And I think that there are just all sorts of problems with the literal when possible approach to interpretation. And I do think that it, it creates a lot of difficulties here because then what the Christian is simply obliged to do is accept at face value that God commanded the mass slaughter of entire peoples. And of course, the cognitive dissonance that that creates not only with our moral sensibilities, but also with who we believe God has called us to be in Jesus, in following Jesus. I think that just creates an enormous cognitive dissonance.
0: So we don't, we want to avoid this like fundamentalism where we're just reading everything literally until proven otherwise. Um, but then I think the question is like, how should we interpret the Bible? So like in your book, you give like five different principles. I don't know if you want to go through all of them or um, just kind of give like a general overview. But like, how should we interpret the Bible? Um, yeah.
1: Yeah. So uh, I think we should interpret the Bible as, first of all, as Christians. And mm-hmm. and that might, um, to some people that might sound trivial. To, to other people, that might sound very controversial. It depends on the person. But, but what that means, first of all, is interpreting the Bible always consistently with your background Christian beliefs as the interpretive framework for reading the Bible. So of those five principles you mentioned, the first one that I articulate uh, is what I call the perfect God principle, that we always ought to read the Bible consistent with our convictions that the deity described there is a perfect being. Now, here's an example where I think probably this is less controversial. Uh, there are many passages, like in, in Genesis chapter 6, where it describes God as having regrets, having second thoughts, wishing he hadn't done anything. In Genesis 6, the topic is the sinfulness of humanity, and God regrets that he ever created humanity, and he wants to start over again. Now, you could read that literally in accord with the literal principle that I described a moment ago. But one of the problems there. Pretty clearly is that it seems to run pretty far, pretty, uh, pretty starkly against our intuitions, our background mm-hmm. reading assumption of God as being a perfect God, because a perfect God doesn't make mistakes and have regrets. And so I think if you interpret the passage in light of that background assumption that that God does not literally have regrets, what you end up doing is arguing for something like an anthropomorphism, a description of God in human terms, but not something that you interpret literally. God didn't literally have regrets about having created human beings. So that language may function to show God's displeasure with sin, but we shouldn't interpret it literally. And that's in part, at least, because of the background reading assumption that God is perfect. There are other reading assumptions as well that I articulate in the book. So one is a two-authors assumption or principle, and that's the idea that for every text of scripture, there are at least two authors. There is the human author, and there's also a divine author, God. Uh, And if there is some sort of conflict between what the human author is intending in the passage and what God is intending in the passage, then God's interpretation or application for the reader becomes the controlling meaning. Now, what would be an example of that? Well, for example, the the imprecatory psalmist will describe God at times by saying God hates his enemies and God wants to destroy his enemies and he laughs at the coming destruction of the wicked. Now, Hmm. I believe uh, because of scripture and because of other theological reasons that God actually doesn't take delight in the destruction of anybody. So when I read that, I think it's very possible that the Psalmist may have actually had that in the back of his mind, but I think in fact, God is doing something different with that text than actually saying that he does laugh at the coming destruction of the wicked. And so if you have two voices as with this principle, God's voice becomes interpretive control. And then um, it could go on to some like, but maybe I'll just kind of uh, go to the fourth and fifth principles and just kind of wrap it up quickly. Mm-hmm. The, the fourth principle uh, is about always interpreting in light of Jesus, that the life and teachings of Jesus become the, the controlling norm for reading the rest of Scripture. Um, and then the fifth principle is the principle of always reading so as to increase love of God and neighbor, which just flows out of the fourth principle to my mind. Uh, and so if you have those as a framework, then you really have a, a good approach, I think, to begin to think in, in a more helpful and holistic and Christian way about some of these really troubling, violent texts.
0: Mm, that's so great. Um, so the next question I have for you is you've 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 a weighty chapter on like um, moral intuition with regards to like when we look at like reading the Bible in these passages. Um, so you want to talk about like the role that like our moral intuitions play when we're reading the text, especially with regards to like these passages regarding like the Canaanites and biblical violence and such?
1: You know, one of the things that I really tried to do in this book as a contribution to this discussion, because the reality is that there are many books on the topic of biblical violence. So the question mm-hmm. is, well, what makes mine different? And I think probably the one of the things that makes mine different from other books is it has a real focus on the role of moral intuition. Now, mm-hmm. I would say that as a background, this really reflects something of my Wesleyan sympathies. So one of the aspects of John Wesley's thought is an emphasis upon the idea that Scripture is not the single source of our theological reflection and construction. It is the sole norming norm, the the most authoritative source of our theological reflection. But we form our doctrines through a complex process of cognitive reflection on Scripture, in dialogue with other aspects of our human reasoning and experience and and history. And so the the challenge is to recognize that scripture or that doctrine emerges through the creative and thoughtful and careful interplay of scriptural reading with respect to our traditions and history and our personal experience and our reasons and rational and moral intuitions. And so in this book, I really wanna highlight the role that moral intuitions in particular play. So I give an extended thought experiment in, in one of the chapters in the book, about uh, two different guys. One of them says that he believes that God has called him to give all of his, uh, to sacrifice all of his material wealth for the kingdom of God. And the other guy says, I believe God has told me to sacrifice my child for the kingdom of God, quite literally, kill my child, much as Abraham offered Isaac. Now, of course, you you might be open-minded to the first claim. You'd want to maybe talk to that person a little bit more, but it's possible that God asked them to do that, give up all their material wealth. God has done it before. He did it to the rich young ruler. But what about the claim about sacrificing your child? Uh, And I go through the chapter at some length to point out that this person could actually make a fairly good biblical, quote-unquote, case based upon biblical precedent that God could indeed ask him to sacrifice his child, not as an atoning sacrifice, but as perhaps a sacrifice of thanksgiving. So if we are nonetheless totally unmoved, which I think we should be, by that guy's belief that God has asked him to sacrifice his child, it's because something else is at play. And I think one of the other factors clearly at play here is our moral intuitions, which scream against the notion of killing your own flesh and blood as a devotional sacrifice. And I think that speaks to the role of our moral intuitions in our theological reflection. So then the key in the book is to reify and clarify and focus the strength and content of our moral intuitions and allow them to provide a guide as we seek to wrestle
0: theologically and hermeneutically with these violent texts. So one objection that may come up right here is um, someone may be thinking, well, maybe Randall's just trusting his own intuitions more than just like trusting the word of God and the Bible. Um, So how would you respond to like that kind of line of objection, maybe um, to what you're saying here with regards to like moral intuition?
1: Yeah, great question, of course. um, And that's it's good to raise that because that is exactly the kind of question that you're likely to hear. Mm -hmm. So the first thing I would say is that our moral intuitions are not infallible. That is clear. Mm -hmm. Um, And I give some quick examples about that case. So, for example, there were, if you go back 100 years or so, there were Christians, some Christians who thought it was God's will that the races should never marry. Uh, Interracial marriage was wrong. There were many Christians who thought it was just obvious that Jim Crow era laws about the segregation of races was a good thing. Those people were clearly wrong in reading their moral intuitions. At the same time, other people who would have condemned those people, nonetheless, had the belief that in order to achieve a more just and perfect society, we should practice eugenics, uh, which was the selective, quote unquote, breeding of human populations, weeding out the genetically undesirables from the population. And we look upon that with horror as well. So, It's easy to spot the moral errors in other times and places. And the challenge for us, each one of us, is to spot it in ourselves. So I take that as at the outset. We are fallible. We can make mistakes. And so it is possible that when I am so persuaded that God could never ask a parent to sacrifice their child or command people to commit a genocide, I could be wrong. My moral intuitions may, in fact, be unreliable, just like any other aspect of my human reasoning can be unreliable. However, I will say two things. The first thing is um, what we should do then is our due diligence to reflect on our moral intuitions, to really introspect them and see whether at the end of that process, we believe we are still justified in holding that moral conviction. And I do believe based upon the amount of personal reflection and thought and reasoning that I put into this that I am justified in continuing to believe that God would not command genocide, that he would not command human sacrifice. And people who read the book can then judge for themselves whether I've made the case, but I, I do think I make a decent case. The mm. second thing I would point out is that not only are our moral intuitions fallible, but so are our hermeneutics, our reading of the Bible, fallible. And so, yes, I could be wrong, but the traditions that have justified Uh, these, what I think are moral atrocities could also be wrong. So um, what we simply all need to do then is our due diligence and see whether at the end of the day, we are persuaded that it is possible that God commanded genocide or not.
0: Mm. Yeah, that's great. Um, so the next uh, p- portion here is like in your book, you talk about like a, almost like a case study with regards to um, looking at like the, the case of the biblical genocide of like the Canaanites. And that's um, the the, the Hutus and the Tutsis in Central Africa um, and the G- Rwandan genocide that just happened a few decades ago. Uh, so you want to talk about like that and what's going on there and the role that plays in kind of um, building up to like trying to understand what's going on in these passages? Sure, <laughs> sure. Uh, okay, so... The first thing I think we have to appreciate is is that
1: um, I think it's very important and very key to the way I approach this issue is to recognize that the key to really reflecting on our moral intuitions is through experience and thick narratival description. In other words, if you have been a witness to genocide, you have a particular insight into it on the ground that you just cannot get through abstract uh, proposal. Like, like it's one thing to read about one group of people killing another group of people. It's another thing to actually witness that on the ground. Okay. Um, and if you haven't experienced genocide, and thankfully I haven't, uh, the other thing you can do is engage in a thick narratival reflection on things like genocide. So that's what I try to do in the book. Cause I think if we really want to understand what our moral intuitions are here, what they're telling us, Uh, the best way to do it is through a thick narrative description. Because I think the people who typically defend violent readings of the Bible have not taken the time to humanize the Canaanites and really Mm. reflect on what they are proposing. And so the way I propose to do that is through a genocide that is contemporary and that would have been very similar to what happened in Canaan. And so I explain in the chapter on that topic, chapter 6, why I believe the Canaanites are an appropriate, sorry, by the Rwandan, Genocide is an appropriate example because it would be a low-tech, uh, a uh, close-contact genocide, much like that which happened in ancient Canaan. Uh, so there would have been instances of close-contact killing through cutting implements. Uh, machetes uh, were the the primary implement in Rwanda, and it would have been swords and spears in ancient Canaan, uh, and with that kind of thick narrative, we can now have a better understanding of how terrible and horrific genocide is. And that then can help us to clarify what our moral intuitions are
0: about that. Mm. Yeah. It's so helpful. I think like that chapter in the book, cause as, as I kept reading it, like for, at least for me, I always just like, growing up just naturally assumed that like maybe something like a just war interpretation is true um and like reading about like world genocide in your book really helped me to like humanize and think about these things and at least for me and I've seen like in the reviews it's a very challenging book and I think people uh, have appreciated it even if they disagree with you um so with that being said I think it'd be good to get into um four different interpretations of these texts um so what I'll do first is just kind of ask you like what it is and then we'll to get your thoughts on like the plausibility of these these, these ideas. Um, so the first one is the genocide apologists. So it's a, it's a very interesting name. So do you want to talk about um, who are the genocide apologists um, in your view?
1: Yeah, the, the genocide apologists, now these are terms that I've proposed. Uh, so they may, they may get traction, they may not, but I think they're helpful. So the genocide apologists are people who read the text as describing historical events that were commanded by God, which would meet the contemporary legal definition of genocide. So in other words, God commanded the mass killing of the Canaanites to the end of destroying their identity in such a way that it would meet the definition of genocide.
0: So um, then like with the view of like the genocide apologists, like what's your take on like the plausibility of this idea? Well, so yeah. So, 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 um,
1: based upon something like the extended Rwanda analogy that I, I give uh, through by, by way of moral reflection, I think that it's pretty clear that what happened to the Tutsis, who were the target population in 1994 in Rwanda, is morally unconscionable. It's it's a moral atrocity. It's a crime against humanity. It is such that God could not possibly have commanded the kinds of actions that happened in Rwanda in 1994. Mm. Now, I do go into some depth in the chapter on the Rwandan genocide to really help us to understand what is at play in genocide. And so I point out the extreme emotional trauma that comes with killing in terms of the close contact killing of other human beings that would happen in a genocide like this. And the way that people seek to resolve the ethical tension and cognitive dissonance that arises from that is often by perpetuating further atrocities on the target population. So, for example, in uh, genocides like in Rwanda, things that are very common phenomena include torturing victims, mutilating victims, raping victims, um, mocking victims, uh, and by doing that, you dehumanize them further and that releases some of the psychological duress that is experienced by the genocidaire who's committing the genocide. So from those norms of human psychology, we can infer that that likely would have been then the same human psychological coping mechanisms that Israelite soldiers would have been undergoing as they were eradicating the Canaanite population. And I I think it's pretty clear that this is just a horrific picture. In fact, the deep irony of the genocide apologists is that they argue that the Canaanites had to be eradicated in order to protect the spiritual purity of the Israelites. And yet the very mode of eradicating them would itself have been profoundly morally corrupting on the population of Israelites.
0: Yeah, that's great. Um, so the next idea then is the just War interpre- interpreters. So you want to talk a little bit about like what who are the just War interpreters and what are they arguing? Uh, just War uh, interpreters are becoming it's becoming
1: a more popular view. and I think that the preeminent defenders of that are really Paul Copan and Matthew Flanagan <clears throat> in their book, Did God really Command Genocide, which I would commend to anybody interested in in reading up on the topic. So what they try to do is say, well, a careful reading here really supports the conclusion this is not genocide. It's really a moral cleansing of the land. And so they point out that there's a very uh, common motif within Joshua, which is to drive them out of the land. You also find it in Deuteronomy. And so they say, well, the preeminent motif here is actually not killing all the people in the population, which you have referenced in a place like Deuteronomy 20, but rather the idea is to drive them out of the land. And then where you do have mass killing of the population such as in the cities of Ai and Jericho in fact those quote unquote cities were probably closer to military outposts so that you'd have the civilian population in the land and you'd have military in the outposts and you're supposed to kill all the military but then drive everybody else out from the land which they say is is really closer to this moral cleansing. So a couple points of course, I have an extended critique of it in the chapter, but I understand what they're doing and and why they want to kind of avoid the taint of genocide. But at the very best scenario, what they end up doing is still proposing an ethnic cleansing. This meets the standard definitions of ethnic cleansing, removing a particular religious and ethnic group from a geographic territory. Um, More to the point, perhaps, is that it still, I think, also qualifies as genocide. Uh, I think that Copan and Flanagan are guilty of special pleading uh, in terms of trying to say that they've escaped the the, uh, implication of genocide. But if you really think carefully about what they're proposing, uh, first thing I think we have to recognize is that there's abundant evidence that there would have been civilians living within the cities, even if they were largely military outposts. Uh, All you have to do is look at this description of the killing of of women uh, and men who were not on the battlefield in I. And the fact that Rahab and her family were spared, who clearly were not military people. So there would have been all sorts of civilians within these population centers. And then think about this. Uh, As they're driving the Canaanites out of the land, what happens to the Canaanites that couldn't escape fast enough? Who, by by the way, would largely have been the least mobile members of the population, the elderly, the weak, small children, mentally and physically handicapped people? Well, they would have been slaughtered. Now, if you have that occurring today in some part of the world where one uh, group invades a territory to move the other group out of the territory and kill all the people in the major military and civilian uh, uh, settlements and drive everybody else out of the land but kill anybody left behind, that certainly would qualify, I believe, as a genocide. So I think it's, it's special pleading to try to say that they've escaped that. So I understand what they're trying to do. I just don't think that they get us very far in aligning
0: the text with our moral intuitions. Mm-hmm. I'm curious if like maybe like Flanagan and Copan would maybe just bite the bullet and say, like, hey, by maybe by your definition, this would be maybe like what you'd call ethnic cleansing. But what we have here is a just war. It's not them um going out trying to kill um these Canaanites in, in this battle because oh they just hate the Canaanites, but it's trying to like Get the promised land um, and like free free the land that they were called to live in. Um, so maybe then it wouldn't be like as bad as almost it may seem like apparently. Um, so I'm curious if you kind of tracking with me, like how you'd respond to that kind of like, maybe like objection to your argument.
1: Well, I, I will say that every genocide and every ethnic cleansing in history has been, uh, the genocidaires, those who participated in it have attempted to to justify it with with various explanations. Explanations, including well, they are less than human, which is interestingly one of the claims about the Canaanites. Sometimes uh, another one is that well, they are just so inexplicably wicked that they would corrupt us, or we need their land. They they are squatters on the land, and those are all rationales that have been provided for the actions in Canaan. Uh, so I would I would say if we're going to be maximally skeptical about the plausibility of any of those justifications for any other genocide in history, why do we suddenly Drop our our guard here. Now, another thing, another thing is is that uh, this leaves open the possibility that God can command this again. Um, there are ways that you can interpret the violence in Revelation. If you have the theological framework in Joshua, that you can interpret uh, the violence in Revelation seventeen, eighteen places like that, uh, as eradicating the population that has not submitted to Yahweh which could allow for an interpretation of genocide in the future. And there are no shortage of Christians in history who have appealed to Joshua to justify various war crimes, uh, including some of the Puritans in the 17th century, 18th century in America with First Nations, Indigenous peoples, or people like Oliver Cromwell against the Irish in the 17th century. So I think it's, it's not, a, not a path that I want to go down.
0: Mm. Uh, the next uh, kind of like school of interpretation here is the spiritualizers. So who are the spiritualizers and what, and what are they making these texts with regards to biblical genocide?
1: What I call the spiritualizers are, I, I break them into two groups. I call them ancient and modern. And the ancient spiritualizers are people like Origen, uh, Gregory of Nyssa from the patristic era so the two three four hundreds five hundreds who were troubled by biblical violence and so one way that they sought to resolve the cognitive dissonance with being a disciple of jesus is to spiritualize or allegorize the narrative so a common move is to say in essence that the canaanites represent sinful impulses within the human soul and The occupation of Canaan, then, is an extended allegory for uh, the spiritual sanctification of the individual, so that as you eradicate Canaanites from the land, you are eradicating sinful impulses in your life. This reading was, in fact, so influential that Douglas Earle points out that during the the Crusades in the 12th, 13th, 14th centuries, there were few if any appeals to the book of Joshua to justify the actions against the Muslims in the Middle East. And that's because the spiritualized readings of origin were so impactful on the medieval church that people just didn't think of going to Joshua to justify violent hmm. total war against another group. Uh, instead, people went to the book of Maccabees in, in the in the Deutero canon in order to justify this kind of violence. And so that's that's the ancient uh, spiritualizers, the modern spiritualizers are people who are, I think, more circumspect about the limitations of this kind of allegorization. And there are different problems with it. The one biggest problem, probably is the lack of hermeneutical control. Like how do you how do you how are you not just projecting the meaning that you want to find onto the text, which I think is a fair objection or concern that's often been raised? And so the modern spiritualizers try to be uh, very attentive to what the text is doing, but say that we can nonetheless develop certain spiritual principles that deconstruct the violence and align the text with our commitments as Christians. For example, people like Douglas Earle and Jerome Creech, they argue that, um, well, uh, these texts were likely, Deuteronomy, Joshua likely achieved their final form in around the uh, 600s, around the time when Israel was under threat from Babylon, right before they fell to Babylon. And the meaning of the text, the significance for the reading audience at that time would then not have been a triumphal conquest of another people that you've eradicated. Rather, the meaning that comes to the reader in that context is that just as Israel had to be pure and separate from the Canaanites, so we under pressure, under duress from the Babylonians need to be pure and separate from them to maintain our own spiritual identity. Uh, And these readers, uh, people, the the modern spiritualizers, they also say the text deconstructs the kind of absolute in-group, out-group distinctions that you get in genocide. So for example, Rehab, is brought into the Israelite community and Achan is expelled. One of the insiders is expelled from the community. And the literary function of that contrast is to break down the absolute in-group out-group distinctions that make genocide possible. So those are some of the, I think, sophisticated and thoughtful readings that one gets from contemporary spiritualizers. They try to be attentive to the text, but they, they want to read the text consistent with ethical intuitions and also are Commitment to follow
0: Jesus. So, what are your thoughts on this um, hypothesis, Randall? Like, do you, do you see any like plausibility to the spiritualizers? Uh, yes. Uh,
1: so, my my focus, my biggest concern in the book, first of all, is to kind of show how I don't think that the genocide apologist and the just war theorist approaches work. I think mm-hmm. that they are failed paradigms, and we need to move beyond them. And so I'm really open to what the spiritualizers do. And among their work, I'm most sympathetic with the contemporary spiritualizers. Now, the great thing is that, that this, you, you could take some of the insights that come from these contemporary spiritualizers, and you can also look at other ways as well to read the text because they're not mutually exclusive. But I do think that they offer some important insights that we need to consider.
0: Um, So the last kind of like school thought here is the idea of like the providential errantists. Um, So who are the providential errantists? Like what are they saying? These are people that, um, as I've adopted this term, that would
1: believe that there are errors in scripture and that God accommodated to those human errors and he uses them in his sovereignty as so that it's still all part of God's inspired scripture. But in the same way that I mentioned earlier that I believe the imprecatory psalmist is an error when he says that God laughs at the coming destruction of the wicked. So I believe that there are on this view, other errors in scripture and that we are invited as readers into the text to identify the errors by reading the text Christologically or through Christ and that the errors are there for our transformation Hmm. so that we can be transformed through identifying them uh, in Christ. So for example, when you read the imprecatory Psalms, we find that, Okay, the imprecatory psalmist, we can identify with his emotion and anger and hatred of his enemy, but that doesn't mean we baptize. It doesn't mean that we say it's good. Sometimes we have hated our enemies too, and we can identify with him emotionally, but we also read the imprecatory psalms through Jesus who says, we are called to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us. And so you read the text holistically like this, recognizing that God has providentially brought in errors um, from the perspective of the human authors, but God inherently did that himself. Because God knew what he was doing, and, and his text is multifaceted in its function and purpose.
0: Mm. Um, so what are your take, then, on, like, the providential errantes? Like, do you think the idea works? Um, it's like, where does your mind go when you think of this idea?
1: I think that that the providential errancy position is is one of the most promising. So um, I end up in, in the book. So I consider a couple people I call providential errantists, including uh, Greg Boyd and Eric Siebert. And so I'm, I'm sympathetic with, with their approach. I think there's a lot of insight there. I do as well, as I said, think that the modern spiritualizers have some important insights. <clears throat> and maybe even the traditional allegorists, the traditional spiritualizers do as well, the ancient ones. Um, and so at the end, I'm not giving the golden key for, hey, mm-hmm. this is how you understand and interpret this. And I, uh, So some people may be disappointed. Like they want to say, at the end of the day, how do I interpret this? I want to know, what is the one right interpretation? But maybe there is no one right interpretation. Maybe part of the invitation of the text is to recognize the complexities and the difficulties here and that we are invited to join the reading community as we wrestle with them in a way that is consistent with our commitment to follow Jesus and love our neighbors as ourselves and also consistent with our deepest and most
0: important moral intuitions as to what the nature of the good and the right is. Mm. Um, So I appreciate going through those. Um, A couple questions here, and we'll hopefully do a little bit of Q&A here at the end if you have a question or super chat. Um, But the question is, like, why wouldn't God just be clear? Um, You know, some people may say, like, well, we have all these different interpretations um, and people disagree and there's arguments, but like, why couldn't God just like clearly let us know? Um, this is how we should interpret the passage. Like, why do we have to go to like all this extent to try to to try to like understand it with regards to, like our moral intuition reading the text?
1: I think that uh, I, this is really the subject of my final chapter. Why isn't it clearer? <clears throat> so the the one thing that I w- one thing I would say here to start is that the central identity of uh, the people of God is uh, goes back, I believe, to. Uh, Genesis chapter 32, where Jacob wrestled with the angel. And when he did that, he wrestled with the angel of the Lord all night. That was, in fact, the Lord. He is then given the name Israel, which means that he who struggles with God. Mm -hmm. And so uh, the very identity to be Israel from that time on is to be one who struggles with God. And in fact, I think that this is what you see when uh, Abraham questions God about the destruction of Sodom, or when Moses questions God about God's intention to uh, give up on his covenant with Israel and to start over again. Uh, or when you have Job questioning God and his judgment and God at the end, he kind of harangues Job. But then he says that Job was the only one who spoke rightly of him. Uh, and then you have the, the the psalmist who time and again is bringing all his questions to God. Um, and what I think that you see there is, that's just the nature of the Judeo-Christian tradition back to its founding text in the Bible. I mean, look at the, look at the words of Ecclesiastes. Meaningless, meaningless, everything is meaningless. And yet there's no sort of a footnote that says, he doesn't really mean that, right? We are the ones who are invited to wrestle with that text and what it means in our time and place. And so it seems to me that this is just part of the whole framework of this tradition, that deeper devotion to, to Christ. A deeper spiritual identity with God is an invitation to wrestle openly with the text because God obviously does find intrinsic value in having given us a text that is not easy all the time to Mm -hmm. figure out, even if you can get the main thing, which I think you can. This is, I mean, I accept what is called the perspicuity of scripture as a Protestant, which is that you can get the big picture. You can get the main message, which is, of course, fall, a creation fall and the redemption a restoration through Christ and and the coming kingdom of God. But there's all sorts of room in the midst of that for wrestling with the text. And I believe that that is uh, what we should expect and what we should prepare people in our churches to be ready for is to be able to wrestle without feeling you have to have it all figured out.
0: Hmm. So I think maybe like a skeptic would look at this. Um, I think the embarker brought this little bit, little bit, a little bit up in your debate with him, where it's like, well, why can't we? It seems like we could just like just use this to discard Christianity as false. Like, um, like it seems like Christians have to go to such like great lengths to just get away from just like reading the text as it is literally, um, and just like you know, so like why, why do all this like mental gymnastics to like um, work your way through this text when you could just say, hey, well, yeah, this Christianity stuff is just false.
1: First of all, uh, so I had a degree in English literature some years ago. And so when we had a text like a a novel by William Faulkner or Ernest Hemingway or James Joyce, which is one of the examples I give in the book, that the recognition of the author, who this individual is, is an invitation to recognize that there are layers of depth to wrestle with in this text. And that's why when you study English literature, you realize that there are fundamental conflicts and debates and disputes about how to interpret and apply texts. Because the more brilliant a a writer is, often the more depth there is in their writing, the more sophistication. If you believe that God is the author of Scripture to begin with, well, then you should have a predisposition to find that there are ocean depths of meaning here. And it's not going to be simple and easy to figure out. Not like the fundamentalist assumes that everything should be like a one-dimensional layer of meaning. Ah, There you go. That's what what a text means. That's how you apply it. On the contrary, if this is God's work to us and is uh, is reflective of the master storyteller, we should expect this kind of complexity. Now, I recognize the incredulity of people who independently are already not convinced that God is the author of Scripture. To them, it will look like a misbegotten exercise. But that's the role for wider Christian apologetics, right? To provide arguments and evidence for the existence of God and the truth of Christianity. And as you do that on the wider field of debate, and you remove the obstacles to considering scripture as God's inspired text, you now open the door for people to be willing to consider that maybe there's a lot more going on here than we had supposed at first blush.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, one more question I have for you, and then we'll get a little bit of audience Q&A. you have questions for free to ask those now um, is like, it almost seems like maybe someone would say, well, are we going down this slippery slope um, where like we have these intuitions that say maybe like, um, like this, like ethnic cleansing or genocide where we're God's commanding them to displace the Canaanites. Well, that's wrong. So obviously God didn't do that. But then we have like different ideas in Christianity, like the final judgment and like revelation. And we have like hell, whether it's like a a conditional thing, as I think you would believe. Um, Then we have like the killing of Ananias and Sapphias and acts in, in in the book of acts. So like, how do we draw the line like with regards to like when these things like actually maybe like happened is like God's will versus like, well, we're just maybe like reading the text wrong. Um, So if you kind of get what I'm saying here, like what are your thoughts on that that question?
1: Yeah. um, Again, uh, in one sense, this is really the the, the question that people raise when you begin to question the literalist hermeneutic that you interpret text literally where possible. If you say, actually, no, you're not justified in just having a literal common sense interpretation for the contemporary English reader as being your default interpretation, Um, then people can be really discombobulated by that. They can be really upset because they're like, well, then how do I know how to interpret anything? And I understand the kind of existential upset that people have, but adopting an indefensible approach to the text as your default, quote unquote, neutral approach is not the solution. So I I do think that we have to recognize that common sense reading for common sense, quote unquote, literal reading for a contemporary reader is not a neutral or good hermeneutic as a default. Uh, You do need to wrestle with the complexity of the text. And I think that it's the same thing here. Now, um, there's you can, of course, have this sort of slippery slope concern. But I think that um, really what you should do again is 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 that you're not cavalier about it. You don't just throw off centuries of tradition of interpreting a particular passage because you want to, or it's the fashionable thing to do. But you can begin to challenge what are often very common and widely held views if you believe you have adequate theological justification for doing so. So uh, you mentioned hell in passing. Well, if you've thought really hard about the doctrine of hell and you're persuaded that there are some significant Biblical, theological, ethical, practical, historical problems with eternal conscious torment, you may indeed end up adopting another view of hell. Now, a person can say, well, well, that's where does it stop then? Well, you know, it's not clear because what you simply have to do is take each issue as it comes. So, yeah, that's not going to be satisfying for everybody, but I think it is simply a matter of coming to recognize the difficulties that we face here. I would want to come back to this, however that if the alternative to what I'm proposing is accepting that God commanded actions like hacking women and children and infants into pieces, uh, hunting them down as they're trying to escape and committing a genocide on them equivalent to what happened in Rwanda in 1994, I think if we can eliminate that as a viable option, we ought to be really hopeful about
0: being able to do so. Thank you for that. Um, we're gonna get a little bit of QA here. Um, Aaron Rum brought something up where it's, it's a common idea is um he says Canaan was filled with uh, Anakim and Raphim and Nephilim. Um God was just judging them the same as he did in the flood. Um so I think it's a common argument for maybe someone who like come from like maybe like a just war, um, or maybe like what you call a genocide apologist. So, like what are your thoughts on this idea, Randall?
1: Yes, uh, I do talk about that in passing briefly in the book. So the idea there is that these were not essentially what what the the idea here is is that they're not fully human so it's okay to commit genocide on them which of course uh, as i point out in the book again it, there are really two standard justifications for genocide that have been given historically you can call them ontological and non-ontological ontological so ontology refers to being so an ont- ontological justification for genocide says that it is in terms of their being. They are fundamentally different than fully human, and so we can eradicate the entire population. And that's what some people want to argue with respect to the ancient Canaanites. Uh, That is what some people want to argue with respect to Jews in World War II. They weren't fully human. The non-ontological justification are ones that say, well, they are fully human, but there are some mitigating circumstances that weren't destroying them, like They've possessed our land, but they're squatting here, or they present a moral corruption to us that if, if they are allowed to exist, they will taint us or something else. And so that would be a non-ontological justification. Um, so if somebody wants to argue an ontological justification, they can do so. It's tough to stop them. I will point out that what they're doing is really no different rhetorically than what was done in World War II to justify killing people. Um, Jews in in the in the theater in the European theater of war. Mm. Um, beyond that, I would point out this: that contemporary descendants of the Canaanites have been identified. There was an interesting National Geographic article on this a couple of years ago. I, I reference it briefly in the book. So we do have modern descendants of ancient Canaanites genetically, and I think they're fully human. So. Uh, I wonder at what point they ceased to be fully or ceased when, at what point they became fully human. Uh, It's an interesting Mm -hmm. question. So I would be skeptical. I'll put it that way about
0: those justifications. Mm -hmm. Uh, One more question for you, not necessarily related to um, this conversation, but it was an interesting thing that I wasn't really sure what was going on here was from Jono, which said, can you ask Randall to address the fake Twitter account controversy? (laughs) So I don't know if you know what's going on here, Randall. I I don't know what that's referring to. I don't know. Do you have a burner account, Randall, where you just kind of it's anonymous and it's just like you just post crazy things? Me? No. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. I, I think I
1: think that would be that would be lying or deceptive. So I wouldn't do something like that. So if <laughs> yeah, yeah. If, if there's a if there's an allegation going around that I'm posting things on Twitter under a fake account uh, i'd like to see the
0: evidence for that mm-hmm. no I, I mean i was just joking and i don't think that's what jonah was referencing to i wasn't really sure so i thought maybe you had an idea well well it's a f- but i mean
1: honestly that's how i interpreted what what he said there too I, i'm not sure mm-hmm. otherwise how to interpret it so yeah
0: yeah no well, um,
1: I- you can yeah this is a good segue though you can find me on twitter if you just search my name randall rouser so i am there and i have a lot of fun on twitter
0: I do. I, I'm always enjoying your tweets because it seems like you're picking a fight with somebody every day. And it's just like, is it going to be the Christians, the atheists? Like, who's it going to be, you know? Well, I'm not trying to pick fights with anybody. Uh, mm-hmm. But I think that one of the
1: dangers of social media is um, it it tends to put people into silos and uh, oppose them against one another. Mm-hmm. And so I, I usually try to, to to use Twitter in a way, maybe to be provocative, get people thinking. But I will say this, that I'm critiquing, as this book shows, I'm critiquing Christians within, quote unquote, my side or my belief community as much as I critique anybody else. And I think that for everybody, that's what we should be trying to do is uh, allow our the critique to begin at home in, in our belief community. And if we're doing that, then I think that we're justified in going out and in getting into some of the critical engagements with other people but but let's be sure to keep at least half the criticism on our own camp Mm -hmm.
0: yeah that's one thing i really appreciate about like following you and your work is you're equally critical of christians as you are maybe non-christians um and really just interested in in truth and not just kind of like um patting shoulders with people so to speak um so randall we're at the end here do you have any kind of like last thoughts things you didn't get to say before we wrap things up here uh well I guess the last thing I
1: would say is is this, that um, what I want for for the book that I wrote, Jesus Loves Canaanites, to do is is simply to open a conversation about this. Now, there has been a conversation for a while, but I guess I want to further the conversation. And what I want is to give people space to be able to critique uh, and not feel that they have to align themselves with the just war interpreters and the genocide apologists to recognize that there are other ways to affirm in an orthodox sense, the full authority and plenary inspiration of scripture, but in a way that is consistent with our moral intuitions and does I think have a radical recognition for the way that Jesus should shape our entire reading of scripture. So I hope that I can help secure a bigger space for them because a lot of people end up leaving Christianity precisely for this issue, Uh, because they cannot reconcile their their faith to the idea that God would command the genocide of entire peoples. And for those people, the genocide apologists and the just war interpreters, their apologetics and their hermeneutic just doesn't work. And so I, at the very least, want to secure other options. Uh, There are reasons that you can leave Christianity. I don't think this should be one of them.
0: Yeah, and I appreciate your um, your thoughts and your work here, Randall. I think you're really doing a good job of um, furthering the dialogue and bringing forth new conversations here. Um, so I appreciate that a lot. The book is linked down below if you uh, want to check it out. I highly encourage it to anyone who's interested in like this topic. Um, great book. And if you're new to the channel, as always, I encourage you to subscribe. After you go check out Randall's book, um, I hope you. If you're new to the channel, you subscribe. Like all that fun stuff, and then if you enjoy us, you can support us on patreoncom slash apologetics Right now, we're about eighty-five percent of the way to our funding goal, so you can support for as little as a dollar a month on there. Um, but Ray Randall, thank you so much for your time. It's been so much fun. Appreciate all your hard work. Thanks for having me, Zach. I appreciate it. And thank you, everyone, who tuned in. Susan, um, Aaron, Rum, everyone else. Have a good one. God bless.